Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about Chinese aid, uh, not just in Africa, but around the world. And it's a subject that people know very little about. China is very different than Western or what we call traditional aid donors in the United States, Europe, and Japan, where there are dedicated agencies like the USAID, DFID in Britain. Uh, France has their Overseas Development Association, Germany as well, their agencies that do this. And they're very much set up around a common set of rules. And they use and they focus these tools of development that have been going for maybe 50 or 60 years. In come the Chinese over the past 20 years, maybe 30 years actually, who went from being an aid recipient to now being one of the world's largest aid donors. But they're playing by a totally different set of rules. And there's some new data out that's absolutely fascinating that gives some insight into just how much money the Chinese have been spending on overseas development. Consider this. Uh, since 2000, from 2000 to 2014, Beijing committed $354 billion in official finance to 140 countries. Now, if you consider that in the context of what the United States has done over the same period of time, the United States spent $394 billion uh, in those 14 years. So the Chinese are right up in there. Now, you may ask, why haven't I heard about this? In part because aid in China is considered a state secret. They don't have a dedicated agency. They don't have transparency. And as a result, the world really doesn't know that much about it. This also makes doing research about Chinese aid very challenging. And data gathering has been a massive issue in, in Western and other research about how, what China gives to whom. In addition, we should also say that the, the word aid, while it sounds simple, actually breaks down into a whole bunch of different kinds of financing. Um, and the way that the Chinese mix these different kinds of financing is different from how Western countries do. So that all makes up a very kind of complex get a quick issue in relation to Chinese financing. We're starting to get that insight, as I mentioned, in this new report, and it comes from an organization called Aid Data, which is a research lab at William & Mary College in the U.S. state of Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. And the report is Aid, China, and Growth, Evidence from a New Global Development Finance Dataset. Uh, Brad Parks is Aid Data's Executive Director and Research Faculty at William & Mary's Institute for the Theory and Practice of International Relations, where he's running a team of about 30 people who are helping him to collect this data and produce the work. And Brad, welcome to the show for the first time. We're honored to have you. Thanks for having me. Listen, let's start just again stepping back about the insights that you brought to the Chinese aid world, which we don't know so much about. How did you come to these numbers if they are in fact secret? Well, when we originally uh, set out to try to uh, estimate the scale and scope of uh, China's overseas development program, uh, we started by uh, going through the front door, so to speak. So we originally approached the Chinese government itself, um, as we've done with uh, many other sources of aid, and we asked them, uh, would you be willing to disclose uh, project-level Uh, information about your overseas spending around the world. Uh, There's a lot of interest in this topic, and uh, aid data uh, publishes or republishes uh, data from more than uh, 90 uh, bilateral and multilateral donors, and we were uh, sort of cordially uh, informed that those data would not be forthcoming. Uh, The data, as you mentioned in your preamble, are officially 
considered to be a state secret. And so uh, we really had to uh, sort of think about uh, innovative means by which we could uh, record uh, detailed and comprehensive data on China's overseas uh, development footprint. And uh, that really um, led to the creation of this methodology that we now call TUFF, T-U-F-F, which stands for Tracking Underreported Financial Flows. Um, and uh, TUFF, you know, just very briefly to help you understand what it is, this is a, a methodology that's been developed over the course of the last five years in partnership with uh, faculty at um, uh, Harvard, Heidelberg, uh, University of Cape Town, Brigham Young University, College of William and Mary, um, and about 100 research assistants uh, supporting these, these faculty and staff in actually implementing the methodology. And effectively what it is, is a, a systematic, transparent, and replicable set of open source data collection procedures that make it possible to identify very detailed financial, operational, and locational information about government-funded projects, um, specifically for those donors and lenders um, that don't participate in international reporting systems like the International Aid Transparency Initiative or the OECD's uh, creditor reporting system. And effectively, what the Tough methodology does is it standardizes and synthesizes very large volumes of uh, unstructured open source information from four different categories of sources. Uh, the first category is English and Chinese language news reports. Um, the second category is uh, data and documentation that's published in a kind of decentralized or unstructured way by Chinese uh, ministries and embassies and the, their network of economic and commercial counselors offices around the world. Um, the third category is, uh, since there's two parties to every one of these financial transactions, um, the aid and um, debt information management systems of China's counterpart countries um, are a rich source of uh, information on the different grants and loans that China's providing. So we scrape out all of those data uh, from the counterpart countries. And then finally, we have a protocol uh, to standardize and synthesize uh, case study and field research uh, that's undertaken by this kind of distributed network of uh, uh, thousands of scholars and NGOs and other groups that are doing uh, reporting on the ground, in some cases on just a single project that China's funding, or maybe a, a handful of projects. And so the methodology sort of brings structure and order um, to all of this unstructured uh, information uh, and then records it in a, uh, a database at the project level. So you can say, you know, this project was committed on this day. Uh, these were the terms of the financial transaction. Here's the precise GPS coordinates of where the project started. And we also follow the money from initial pledge into an official commitment and then into the implementation stage, the completion stage, and in some cases, projects get suspended and are canceled. And so we also uh, record that. So if we look at the big picture, um, what are some of the broad ways in which Chinese aid and US aid are similar and different? Well, I guess um, uh, one way that uh, Chinese and Western aid are 
uh, remarkably similar is in the motivations that guide the distribution um, of aid, so uh, irrespective of the source. So we've uh, published a study called uh, Apples and Dragon Fruits that looks at uh, what are the kind of motivational drivers of um, of Chinese aid, and then we compare that to the very uh, to the the motivations that uh, guide uh, Western aid. And what we find is that uh, the two primary determinants of where Chinese ODA go are remarkably similar to the determinants of where Western aid goes. So uh, poor and populous countries uh, get a disproportionate amount of uh, Chinese ODA. Uh, so th those are two kind of uh, proxies for the, the level of need in the, the recipient or the borrower country. And then the other major driver of where Chinese aid goes is the uh, degree to which the uh, counterpart country aligns its voting in the UN General Assembly with China. So this is a this is kind <laughs> of a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and this is uh, there's a long-standing tradition uh, in political science of using voting patterns in the UN General Assembly um, to understand uh, how how closely uh, a country is seeking to align its foreign policy positions uh, with another country. So this is effectively a, a proxy measure uh, for foreign policy alignment. Um, and so the interesting thing is that. Uh, if you kind of rerun that very same analysis for Western donors, uh, you find that uh, the same the same factors influence where Western aid's going. So in some ways, you know, it appears that you know Beijing perhaps is taking a page out of uh, you know Washington and Brussels uh, playbook. You know, there, we hear a lot of. Uh, kind of bombastic claims about uh, other potential factors that are influencing the distribution of uh, Chinese aid, commercial interests, interest in acquiring natural resources, possibly a favorable disposition towards authoritarian regimes. And we just find that none of these factors stand up to sort of careful empirical scrutiny. That is fascinating. Kobus, let's do a little exercise here. I'm going to read the top 10 recipients of official Chinese development aid, or ODA, and then this is from aid data, and I'd like you to read then the 10 US, and we will then see if Brad's kind of theory is panning out here. So number one for China, this surprised me actually, Cuba, $6.7 billion, Cote d'Ivoire, $4 billion, Ethiopia, $3.7 Zimbabwe, 3.6. Cameroon, $3.4 billion. Nigeria, 3.1. Tanzania, 3 billion. Cambodia, 3 billion. Sri Lanka, 2.8 billion. And Ghana at 2.5 billion. So seven out of the top 10 recipients of Chinese ODA, official development aid, are in Africa. Go ahead with your list, Kobus. Uh, the U.S. is um, Iraq at 39.3 billion, Afghanistan at 30.4 billion, Pakistan at 12.8 billion, Jordan 8.8, .8, Colombia 8.8, .8, Ethiopia 8.8, .8, Kenya at 7.3, Sudan at 7.2, and the DRC at 7. And so, Brad, to your point here, we can actually, just in those two brief lists, really read in a lot of a country's foreign policy and geopolitical strategy and what they're doing. And so it looks like, as you pointed out, that the Chinese are in fact using aid in very a similar way that the United States and the Western uh, Europeans have been doing for a long time, which is it's not really necessarily benevolent, but it's in pursuit of a broader geopolitical agenda. Now, the question that I have is, 
The Chinese are playing by what seems to be a different set of rules. There's no transparency in how they dole out aid. They are not part of the traditional aid groups, even though that's starting to change now in Africa, where they're engaging with United Nations more. But they're not funneling a lot of money through the World Bank and through uh, the IMF, as the Europeans and Americans have done in the Japanese. And they will tell you, and they've told me this in the past, that one of the reasons that they want to execute some of the aid, the development projects themselves with their own construction, their own banks, is to avoid the trap of corruption that has bedeviled the West for 50 years, where a trillion dollars of aid has been funneled into Africa with marginal results. I mean, for the most part, this has been a rather ineffective use of Western taxpayer money. And the Chinese said, we want to do something different. Is there any legitimacy to that argument that they are approaching aid differently because what they saw for the past 50 years in places like Africa were not effective? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there there is a kernel of truth to this claim, uh, but it but it's a, a really nuanced issue because on one hand, uh, the nature of the way in which China delivers foreign aid um, does provide a measure of um, fiduciary control that is often not present in Western projects. So because. Uh, China largely requires that its projects be implemented by Chinese contractors. Many times uh, money is not actually changing hands with the counterpart government. So, you know, uh, China will come to agreement with uh, government X that we're going to build a road or a bridge or an electricity grid. And once um, uh, there's agreement on the over overarching objective, um, then a procurement process is set in set in motion uh, to contract a Chinese firm that's qualified to do that work. And so, uh, you know, many Western donors and lenders have uh, moved towards international competitive bidding, uh, where uh, any firm, regardless of its country of origin, can. Uh, compete for the implementation of the project, including host country uh, firms. And in some cases, Western donors and lenders have even uh, relinquished some control over the bidding process to their host government or their counterpart government. And so um, relinquishing some of that control to the counterpart government uh, introduces some uh, vulnerabilities in terms of uh, there, there being scope for bid rigging or other, other forms of uh, public sector corruption. So I think, uh, you know, the, the Chinese authorities think of the way that their aid system is set up as sort of creating this kind of agency of restraint that uh, because public officials in their counterpart countries can't sort of get their hands on the monies um, that, you know, that uh, their view is that this is um, uh, insulating uh, their projects from corruption. And the flip side of this is uh, that uh, because China has a non-interference uh, policy um, with respect to how it um, uh, sources ideas for new aid projects and how it goes about implementing aid projects, effectively, you know, they have an on-demand aid system. So they typically go to the head of state or the head of government and uh, they won't implement a project until the head of state or head of government explicitly requests it. And so we have a study um, uh, called Aid on Demand that geolocates uh, where 
Chinese development projects are located in Africa within countries. And what we find is that uh, one of the single strongest predictors of where these projects end up going is in the home regions of uh, political leaders, uh, the, those heads of, heads of state and heads of government. And this should not be terribly surprising, right? If you have a demand-driven system and your primary interlocutors for sourcing that demand is the president or the prime minister, um, you know, it, it should not be uh, too shocking that the money ends up uh, being distributed in ways that uh, favor the, the, the president or the, the prime minister. Now, why is this potentially important? Because if aid is being distributed along domestic political lines, rather than according to uh, kind of need-based criteria or efficiency uh, criteria, um, then there is is potentially scope for political misuse of those funds. And there is a, a sort of um, second study that um, was recently published um, by two Swedish economists um, using those very same data on where Chinese development projects are located in Africa. And what they did was they had this clever approach of merging the, the project location data uh, with household survey data in Africa on uh, re uh, reported experiences of local corruption. And what they found is that when Chinese development projects show up in a village or a town in Africa, that you can see uh, significant increases in local corruption uh, after the fact. And so, uh, you know, one of the, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly why this is the case, but um, there are, fairly uh, strong reasons to believe that if aid is being allocated according to political criteria, uh, that this may be one of the reasons why uh, we see higher levels of corruption at that, at that very local level. And should we locate this, if, if this, you know, if, if this correlation is, as you pointed out, if, you know, if that is the, the reason for it, um, are, do we locate this in problems in African governance or in the Chinese, the mechanisms of, sort of Chinese aid provision or both? Um, and is there a way, do you think, to, to avoid that whilst, while without kind of stripping, you know, kind of African governments of agency? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the answer is it is a little bit of both. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the sort of case study work that we've done to try to figure out what exactly is going on uh, in terms of the, the underlying domestic political processes suggests that uh, when uh, politicians have uh, are granted higher levels of discretion, they will use that discretion irrespective of the source of funding. So if it's funding from, uh, say, uh, Arab donors, and they're willing to let you cite the project wherever you wish, uh, you know, you are um, likely to use use that funding in, in a similar manner. But when a when the source of funding, uh, the donor or the lender um, has due diligence procedures or project appraisal procedures that allow detection, early detection of this type of political bias, um, there is evidence that we don't actually see um, aid distributed in these uh, in these uh, political ways. So we've done this analysis for the World Bank, and the World Bank has very strong due diligence procedures. Uh, and uh, there we find absolutely no evidence that there's favoritism in the distribution of World Bank funding towards the home regions of 
uh, of political leaders. And I would just note that there's a, a sort of trove, uh, untapped trove of interesting insights in the WikiLeaks cables uh, about this very topic. So you can see uh, the U.S. Embassy reflecting in their uh, cable reporting back to Washington on project proposals, incoming project proposals from various uh, low-income and lower-middle-income uh, governments. I was just the other day reading uh, some of the cable reporting from Sri Lanka, where uh, the the U.S. government or the U.S. Embassy uh, in Colombo was flagging at a very early stage that there were that the government was trying to funnel. Uh, very large-scale infrastructure projects into a very small village in the south of Sri Lanka with uh, a town called Hambantota with only about 10 or uh, 20,000 residents. And it turned out that that was also the president's hometown. And so um, the, the embassy took it upon themselves to reach out to some of their counterparts in the UK government, the German government, Asian Development Bank and World Bank to sort of let them know, we think there might be something fishy going on here. Well, it turns out the Chinese went big into Hambantota. They put billions of dollars into the president's hometown. That's uh, turned out to be a big problem because some of those projects uh, ended up being white elephants. Uh, but the point is that when uh, donors have uh, policies and and due diligence procedures that allow them to do this early detection, it can it can be prevented. So I guess the point is that there's there's two parties to every transaction. Uh, donors can do their part uh, to ensure that aid is being distributed according to uh, need and efficiency criteria. Um, but there's also some responsibility on the uh, on the host government side. Yeah, there's something that makes me uncomfortable in this discussion. And and I'm not saying my, – my point that I'm going to make here is not necessarily in defense of the Chinese. But whenever we – I have a conversation with Westerners about Chinese aid, there is a lot of the talk of what you've said, which is, you know, aid is political. And there is an implication there that aid from the West is not political. Um, I'm the former editor-in-chief of France24.com, which is a state-funded news broadcaster – the French government would give broadcast training aid to African countries. Guess what? They had to use France 24, and the money circled back to the French to, in order to do that. Um, you know, the you know, you you're now right outside of Washington D.C., where congressmen make sure that the aid bills have corn from their districts, have you know, chicken from their districts, making sure that the products from their districts are included in the aid bill. They're by American rules that are in the aid bills, which are not necessarily to the benefit of the people, but aid is political. They're calling them the Beltway Bandits, which are all the private contractors that surround USAID in Washington. And it's a very, very political atmosphere. When I was living in Kinshasa, um, I saw firsthand uh, no bid contracts from the embassy go to private contractors to, do, to implement aid. That's inherently political. So I guess my question is, is that are the Chinese in any way different? Sure, the method of politics is different. They're sending money to their to, to the leaders of home. Uh, uh, they're sending to the home provinces of leaders. Whereas in our system, we're sending it to congressmen and private corporations. But it's still political at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, that's a fair criticism. There, you know. The, uh 
there are very few angels in this business, right? There, there the politics plagues uh, foreign aid uh, from from the very beginning when the, when the money's being authorized by legislatures in donor countries all the way to the very end, right? When the the aid is on the ground and potentially. Uh, you know, being being misused by by local politicians. Uh, so I, I think that's right. But I also think that there are important um, similarities and differences between China and Western donors. China and uh, Western donors are uh, very similar in how they allocate aid across countries. Right. So uh, across countries, they're both playing the same game. They're both trying to uh, reward their friends and punish their enemies with foreign aid. Um, but uh, once the money is actually allocated to these countries, the manner in which the, the funding is distributed within those countries subnationally um, does differ quite substantially. And, um, you know, that can potentially have uh, far reaching consequences for the nature of um, uh, economic development and inequality in these countries. So just to come back to that example that I gave you in Sri Lanka, you know, we can now see um, that there have been uh, huge uh, economic development gains, sharp reductions in poverty. There's been a big increase in nighttime light uh, in this, this very small uh, village that used to really just be uh, kind of a forested area, and now it's become a, a kind of uh, urban urban center, and that has actually created a new spatial distribution of economic activity within Sri Lanka, right? And when you begin to create new inequalities within a country, uh, new horizontal inequalities, you open up the possibility of uh, creating new tensions and new conflicts in society. Uh, so I think we are just scratching the surface um, at this point in terms of understanding the kind of long-term ramifications of kind of feeding into the political patronage system by allowing aid to be distributed in these ways. And I should say that, you know, I've had uh, many consultations with um, Chinese government officials, and this is not a surprise to them. They understand uh, that that some of their aid projects are being manipulated in these ways. They uh, understand that it's a vulnerability in their demand-driven system. There are also a lot of attractive features about having a demand-driven aid system. Uh, but, you know, as with anything else, they have to kind of weigh the, the benefits and the costs of the system that they've set up. And I think, you know, we're in a period right now of learning and, and adaptation within the Chinese foreign aid system. You know, they've ramped up very quickly over the last 15 years. They've had some big successes. They've also made mistakes. And now that they're a big player with a big footprint around the world, they're trying to recalibrate and learn from the past and think about what they can do differently going forward. Uh, one of the big um, features of, of U.S. aid over the last few decades has been linking aid to um, issues like democratization, for example. So, you know, where um, it, there was pressure on governments that, or on aid recipients to, um, you know, to liberalize their um, their. Uh, Public sector, for example, um, you know, to to uh, increase freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press, and so on. Um, how has Chinese aid impacted on those uses of aid? 
Yeah, so there um, are a number of studies by uh, economists and political scientists that have taken the data that we've published uh, to try to answer this very question. Uh, there's one recent publication by a German economist by the name of Diego Hernandez, and what he's looked at is uh, World Bank conditionality. So a lot of those uh, policy conditions that you're talking about um, are uh, are are included in the the uh, terms of World Bank loans, and so what Diego tried to do is figure out when you receive a a lar- uh, increase in Chinese ODA, does that give you greater bargaining power vis-a-vis your traditional uh, your traditional lender, the World Bank, that would. Uh, usually require that you, uh, in exchange for the money that you're borrowing, uh, implement some of these liberalization measures or different uh, kind of uh, good governance measures. And what he found is that uh, for every 1% increase in Chinese ODA, on average, that led to a 15% reduction in the number of policy conditions in World Bank loans. So there is Uh, some strong evidence uh, that the arrival of Chinese aid uh, at a large scale can substantially increase uh, the bargaining power of governments in the developing world, and they can parlay that bargaining power uh, into uh, fewer fewer conditions. Now, whether one thinks that's a good thing or a bad thing is sort of, uh, I guess, uh, left in the eye of the beholder. Cobus, what's so interesting about the aid data report and how it was interpreted by media in different parts of the world. So in the United States, most of the coverage that I saw focused on what Brad was talking about in terms of how much of the aid is funneled to the home regions of political elites. So it had a distinctly negative filter on it. Out here in Asia, specifically in China, uh, let me read you a headline from the South China Morning Post. This was an editorial that ran on November 8th, so rather recently. Uh, China deserves some praise for aid efforts. U.S.-based project finds Chinese-funded programs tend to be as effective as those paid for by Washington and other donors in generating GDP growth. It's so fascinating to see how the same data set is interpreted in two really distinctive ways. And, and I'm just curious on your take, you know, as a media scholar, how you interpret this. Well, this definitely seems to break down into larger narratives that we've, that we've seen in, um, in the media narration of China-Africa relations as a whole. Um, you know, the, the West, Western media does frequently, and I mean, it's a cliche about Western media that they're always negative about China-Africa. I don't think it's necessarily always the case. But, in, you know, the, that there is a trend. Um, that there's a trend of, of being a little bit jaundiced towards China um, and then, you know, kind of Looking for looking for the other side, looking for the penny to drop, or you know, uh, you know, lo- looking at at a data set and then trying to find the real quote unquote real story, which would be always a negative story. Um, and I think in you know, uh, you know, the South China Morning Post is a, is a you know is is its own particular case. Um, obviously, in more official Chinese press. 
there is always the the very strenuous, you know, kind of searching for the positive spin on any China Africa event, um, and so it, it becomes a, a big job to kind of put, to pick those apart. Like you know, kind of managing the media and like you know, mixing your media in reading about China Africa is its own full time job. Well. well yeah, and I guess you can see just like the China-Africa relationship as a whole, looking at the aid data, you can find in it what you want. If you want to paint a bad negative story of the effect of Chinese aid, there certainly seems to be, as Brad is pointing out, enough data there to show that. The lack of transparency, the as he talked about, this, the, the lack of you know questioning in terms of, of political motives and whatnot – and then at the same time, as you see the South China Morning Post, which is incidentally owned by Alibaba's Jack Ma, so it's not government controlled, but is certainly aligned with a lot of the thinking in China, uh, they tend to find a silver lining. Brad, final question here. What, what should people take away from your report? So you can see there are different interpretations of it. What do you hope that someone who is new to the subject or even a policymaker uh, looks at your report and what's the takeaway for them? What should it be? Well, I think that uh, the major takeaway should be that the prevailing rogue donor narrative about China um, really does not stand up to um, to careful uh, empirical examination. You know, the main uh, the main two findings that emerged from our report was we benchmarked the economic growth impacts of uh, Chinese World Bank and uh, U.S. official financing to developing countries. And what we found is that a doubling of Chinese ODA produces a 0.4 percentage point increase in economic growth in the partner country two years after the aid is approved. That might not sound like uh, a big increase, but if you think about uh, what many many countries would do to get just a, a half a percentage point increase in national economic growth, uh, you know they'd they'd uh, you know move mountains for that, like here in the here in the U.S. Um, and interestingly, you know we find that if we uh, run the very same analysis for the sort of traditional donors, uh, we we see similar economic growth impacts. So I think uh, that should. Um, allay some of the concerns that China is somehow, uh, that aid from China is somehow inferior, right? There is this, there is this sense that in its zeal to um, help partner countries install the hardware of economic development, that China has um, sort of uh, prioritized speed over quality. And so there are many of these kind of uh, journalistic and anecdotal accounts of the road that China built um, and the workmanship maybe was not sufficiently high. And so when a extreme weather event uh, arrived, the road washed away or a hospital was constructed, uh, but there was insufficient attention by the Chinese to staffing that hospital with qualified personnel or stocking it with the right medicines. And while that might be anecdotally true for a hospital here or a road there, if it were systematically true, then this should have been borne out in the empirical testing that we did. And what we find is that, no, actually Chinese aid is uh, similarly effective to Western aid. So I, I think that um, while there are 
certainly some negative unintended consequences of Chinese aid. There's also um, some encouraging evidence uh, in, in our latest report, uh, which should just give us pause uh, when we hear the, the rogue donor narrative. I, I think you know, one of the takeaways from our report should be that there's, there's a lot more nuance and complexity um, than one might initially assume. So there, there are some uh, there are some real strong grounds for optimism, and there are also some grounds for concern. So this is something that, uh, given China's uh, rising uh, role in the in uh, the global development system, this is something that we should continue to monitor very closely. Well, we have said that uh, for a long time on this program that China is changing the rules of the geopolitical game. Aid is no exception. Uh, and this report from Aid Data is really a fascinating insight into exactly how the world is changing. For a long time, people associated aid with the European Union, the United States, and Japan. And as we're seeing from the Aid Data data, that actually is no longer the case. $354 billion from 2000 to 2014. The report is Aid, China, and Growth, Evidence from a New Global Development Finance Dataset. It was prepared by Brad Parks' team at Aid Data at William & Mary College at the Institute for Theory and Practice of International Relations. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow Aid Data and the work that you are doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you guys? Uh, they can either uh, follow us um, at Aid Data on, on Twitter or uh, visit our website, aiddata.org. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Kopas, I still have a an icky feeling about this subject because I feel that Western aid is not criticized enough. And so it was really refreshing for me to hear him echo a lot of what we've been saying over the years about China-Africa, which is that it is a very, very complicated subject. You can see in it what you want. There are good and there are bad parts of it. Anecdotes do not make examples to use to paint a broad brush. Now, before I go any further in my comments about criticizing the aid business, I have been criticized very, very thoughtfully, by the way, for painting too broad a brush across the entire aid business. So I will put a disclaimer out there that I there are good aid projects and there are effective uses of Western money. That said, I generally agree with the critics of aid that show that for the most part over the past 50 to 60 years, it has not worked it has created severe dependencies, it is highly corrupt, and most importantly, there is no accountability about whether or not taxpayer money is being put to good use. So the fact that the Chinese are coming in with a different approach, and we're seeing here empirical data that shows that the Chinese effectiveness of aid at least rivals that of the West, to me is encouraging in one sense. I do recognize, as, he, as, he, as Brad pointed out, that there are severe shortcomings from it, and there are big, big problems with it, and it is not right that so much money goes into the home regions and probably into the pockets of a lot of leaders. But that said, I do like the fact that there's some alternatives to the West. I would love to hear um, the take of an African anti-aid activist on this data. Um, someone like Dambisa Moyo, for example, was, they've done a lot of work on criticizing, uh, you know, these flows of finance from uh, from donors to African governments. And um, Dambisa Moyo is, you know, is famous for calling for the, the end of development aid. Um, it would be very interesting to hear their take on 
on what the effectiveness of this is. And, you know, for example, on the, the numbers that, that Brad quoted, that there are, you know, if there is an inflow of Chinese aid, there is a demonstrable jump in economic, you know, in GDP. Um, so, I mean, it would be it would be very interesting to to kind of get that, get the entire system kind of deconstructed from an African side um, and, to, and, and also criticized from an African side and then to hear what some of these people would like uh, in in its place, you know, kind of like how they would what, how they would like aid to work and whether they would like to to cancel the aid system as a whole. A few months ago, uh, you brought up a very good point about why China is so threatening to the West, and and this was I think you wrote an article for a German publication, and you said that it undermines the Western narrative, the savior narrative. Because China's coming in and doing something in a different way than the West has done. And the West is so much defined itself in Africa about we're here to help you. We're here to save you. There is that savior, that white savior mentality that's there. And in so many ways, the effectiveness of Chinese aid robs Europeans and Americans of that narrative. Yeah, and you know, and and it 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 it's time to complicate that narrative because it's such a corrupt narrative to begin with. You know, um, I mean, because the the narrative, sure, that is the narrative of aid, but it was also the narrative of Western colonialism. Like Western colonialists were always flattering themselves about how they were, how much they were helping Africa, um, and it always happens against the background of massive outflows of raw. African materials, you know, kind of in, in the forms of outflows of people, African people, um, and you know, it's 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 time for a new narrative, and it and that narrative has to be an African-centered narrative. Well, what do you think? This is a very provocative, emotional subject for a lot of people. Again, in the West, it is a very emotional topic because people do think that they're doing good and they're helping other people, and all of this money has to be going to some good use. Um, when you're on the front lines in places like Kinshasa and you see how corrupt the aid business is and you see how incompetent so many aid practitioners are, um, it's disappointing. Now, that's not to say every single one is like that and every single group is incompetent. I'm not suggesting that. But the big systems of money and the flows of money naturally attract corruption on all sides. Uh, but we'd like to hear from you. What do you think of the Chinese aid system? What do you think of the Western aid system? You know, under Donald Trump, this is all going to change in the United States. He's made it very clear that he wants to bring to make America first. So the idea that the United States will continue to dominate the international aid scene and the aid industry may not always be that way. And this is another opening for the Chinese to step up, and that may be part of their longer term agenda. So we will continue the discussion online on all our various social media channels. We will also include links to this in our uh, weekly newsletter. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, we really, really invite you to do it. Um, we're partnering, we're about to announce some partnerships with some great universities. Uh, we're very excited about what's coming in 2018. This newsletter is getting bigger. It comes out every Monday. You can sign up for it over on our Facebook page or go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Kobus and I put it out every Monday. We work on it over the weekend where we curate the top four or five stories of the week. We pick an academic article, we have a podcast in there, and it's just a great way to stay on top of China Africa news. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa news that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk, 
or Eric at eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.